This is my favorite magic trick with my mom's favorite glasses. This is my favorite cake. These are my favorite tonsils. This is my favorite fish fluffy. This is my favorite spider, Tickles the Tarantula. Wake up, Fluffy. Where's my spider? <laughs> you can have some when I'm done. This is my grandpa's favorite keychain. Blink if you can hear me. Please wake up! Today I found my favorite new car. This is my favorite ant farm. This is my favorite puppet, Collie. This is my favorite hat, sombrero. What? Casamia. This is my favorite wrestling move, sleeperhead. Sleeperhead. Oh, I'm Body slam! Look at these guns. This is my favorite toy. My baby brother. I ate it all. Well, welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David. I serve as one of the pastors here, and especially if you're a first-time guest here at any of our venues today, uh, we're delighted to have you uh, as we continue this series called Favorites. As you can tell, we're talking about some of our favorite things. Uh, uh, we are playing on the idea that from a very early age, one of the things that we love to do is to talk about our favorites. I don't know if you look forward to show and tell when you were a kid, but I thought that was the greatest day uh, at school when you could bring your favorite thing uh, and share. And so we're taking that idea to the scriptures. And what I'm sharing with you in these six weeks is some of my favorite scriptures. And by favorite, I mean scriptures that for me in my own life have been transformational, meaningful for me. They've helped me understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They represent turning points for me in my own faith journey and, and scriptures that I believe have deep meaning for us as people of faith. And so uh, I'm excited to continue that today as I share with you again uh, another one of my favorite scriptures. But before I dive in, I want to lift up to you again uh, this resource that we call GPS or Grow, Pray, Study. Uh, this is a guide that we produce each week uh, that is for you to take not only the messages that we share uh, in our weekend services, uh, but also the study of scripture into your own personal uh, devotional life. So we believe that being a follower of Jesus is about growing in deeper love with God. And that the process, the practice of, of reading the scriptures and reflecting on their application in our life, that's one of the ways that we deepen uh, in that journey. And GPS is all about that. If you've never done that before, if you've never taken a portion of your day uh, to invest in that practice, I'd love for you to start GPS 
uh, with us these weeks as we're moving through this series is really are, are designed for beginners, for someone who's just starting out or maybe recommitting to that practice. So you can pick one of these paper copies up uh, in our gathering uh, places outside our worship uh, centers, and then you can also sign up to receive that via email at growpraystudy.org forward slash subscribe. It'll be in your email inbox uh, every single morning. Uh, last week, we, uh, we started this series, and I shared with you first about being uh, away the weekend before. I had the weekend off, and I took the time to go visit some other churches. I did so for the sake of just being present in worship and learning from some churches that I thought were doing great things. I just wanted to see what they were doing and see what maybe we could learn and how we could do a, a better job uh, in, in reaching people and helping uh, first-time guests in particular. And, and what I shared with you last weekend is that even though I have a profession that is centered in going to church. I mean, I, I, you could make the case that I'm a professional churchgoer. That's what I do. Even though I do that every single weekend, that's a part of my life, to walk into a place for the very first time is still intimidating for me. I feel a little bit awkward doing that. You don't know where to park or how early to arrive or what door to go into or where the bathroom is or whether there's going to be coffee there or not or how do you get into the worship space. And then once you get into the worship space, what's going to happen in there? I mean, you don't know any of those things when you walk in for the first time. So if you're a first-time guest today, uh, if you go to lunch or dinner later, I, I think you should like buy yourself some extra dessert or get some ice cream. Pat yourself on the back because what you're doing is really hard. It's really hard. It's really awkward. It sometimes feels uncomfortable to go into some place for, for the first time. But the other thing I thought, having that experience, is that when you walk into a, a, a church for the first time, there's some things that we do that, from the first time perspective, may just be a little bit weird. Like we start with singing in all of our worship services, we, we start with singing and there's probably nowhere else you go in your life where the gathering begins with singing. Like if you went to work on Monday morning and the staff meeting started with, hey, let's all have a song together. You'd be like, what? This is weird. It's, it's just, there's just some things that are odd. There are things about church that from a first timer's perspective, when you walk in, it would make sense for you to ask the question, what's the point? And that's what we talked about last week. I shared with you the scripture that changed my understanding and my thinking of what the point is of faith and church and everything that we do together. So if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go online uh, and listen to that. But we want to go this week uh, to another scripture that addresses the question we kind of got into at the end of the message last week, which is the question, how do we see God? How do we understand who God is and God's character? And that's what we want to look at today is the scripture that for me has helped shape my understanding. It's the foundation for me when I think about who God is and what my life is about in, in living in relationship with this God. So let me begin by talking about why that's an important question. Why, to, why it's important to have an answer to the question of, of, of how you see God. I want you to think back to the last time that you were in some social setting. You were in a gathering of people, and, and, and maybe at least half or more than half were people that you'd never met before. Uh, it might be you this morning here at church, you're here for the first time, you don't know anybody, but, the, but a gathering of some sort that you went to where people were mingling around, there's kind of small talk, and you had to introduce yourself and interact with people that you'd never met before. Now, if you're an introvert, I've just made you very nervous. I mean, you're anxious right now because you're thinking about that going, oh, I don't want, that was torture for you, so I'm sorry for bringing that up, but I want you to think about how those conversations typically go. Maybe you were invited with your spouse uh, to a work event, and you're meeting all sorts of people 
people that they know that you don't know. Uh, you're interacting, engaging, introducing yourself. Think about how that conversation usually goes. Well, it usually starts with introducing yourself. You introduce yourself, you may share a little bit about you. If, if you know that, that in the group there are people who know each other through different people, you might ask, well, how do you know so-and-so? And all sorts of things. You might introduce other people who are there with you. This is, this is my wife or this is my husband. But eventually, you, you run out of things to, to say, right? And there's like that awkward moment of what do we do? What do we say? Well, usually, well, actually, I would say in most cases, there's this default question that we all go to. The question that we turn to when we don't know what else to say, the awkward silence is about to enter into the conversation and we're so afraid of it, we say something like this, what do you do for a living? And here's why we ask that question. We ask that question because we know that there's like a thousand more questions we can ask after that, right? It doesn't matter what someone does for a living, a lawyer, a doctor, a, a stay-at-home mom, an accountant, a, a firefighter. It doesn't matter what they do. We know there's a lot of questions that we can ask after that. We've got like 10 more minutes of comfortable small talk to go through once we know what someone does for a living. But every once in a while, we ask someone what they do, and their answer surprises us so much that we have no idea what to say. For instance, I have a friend who works for the Internal Revenue Service, and his job is investigating tax fraud. Now, can you imagine meeting him for the first time? Like, that's what he shares with you. Like, what do you say next? Like, are you investigating right now? Is there, like, somebody here? I love taxes. Pay them all the time. You know, what do you, what do you say to that? It's just kind of an awkward moment in the conversation because you don't know what to say. But as awkward as that is... I wish that there were moments in my life that I, I could just have a hidden camera mounted in my forehead for when I answer that question for people. I'm in, a, I'm in a setting and people don't know who I am or what I do. Hi, I'm David. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. I get a lot of, wow. <laughs> that is great. I go to church too. I have stopped asking the question, where do you go to church? Because there's usually this moment of panic where they can't even remember what that church is that they went to a long time. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just kind of an awkward, what do you say to the pastor? What do you, what, you, you sort of get this sense that, that they want to just press pause for a moment and turn around to the rest of the group and go, he's a pastor. Stop having fun. Everybody stop right now. There's a pastor. Right? It's just sort of this weird moment. And, and it's happened to me over and over and over again. You feel like a spy that's just been outed. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. I, yeah, that's, that's what I do for a living. But what I've learned over the course of, of, of serving in that role and having lots of those conversations and seeing that moment of panic of, oh, no, what did I say to the pastor five minutes ago? is that people bring to a relationship with me all sorts of preconceived ideas, all sorts of assumptions and ideas. And what I've learned is that they have nothing to do with me. They have absolutely nothing to do with me. They have to do with how they think about God. So I want you to hear what, what A.W. Tozer, a, an early 20th century pastor, he, here's what he says about this idea. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes in your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. I want you just to think about that idea, that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. 
And if you were to tell me, you were to, get, to supply some sort of answer to that question, I could give you, I could predict in some sense, your spiritual future. Now, don't, don't get confused here with the phrase spiritual future. We're not talking about eternity. We're not talking about smoking or non-smoking, that kind of thing. We're not talking about where you end up. That, that's not the direction that we're, that we're going here. We're talking about the relationship that you develop with God. That if you can tell me how you see God and how you think of God and, and how you would express your understanding of God's character, then I can predict with certainty what kind of relationship you're going to develop with God. Because what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, it's up to you whether you decide that that's true. If that's true, then that means that one of the primary values of this book and what we're doing here in worship as we open up the scriptures and invite God to speak to us, if you take this, this GPS resource and you start using this in your, in, your, in your daily life, you start investing in the scriptures and reflecting on the application, that one of the primary values of that is that it helps you understand the character and the heart of God. That's one of the primary reasons that we do it, because we want to understand who God is and we want to deal with and undermine in some ways some of the false assumptions that we might bring into our relationship with God that as we progress will inhibit us in our relationship with God. That that's one of the primary values of this book is it shares with us the character and heart of God. Now that being said, let me just go ahead and address, let's just be honest and candid about something. Because even if you accept that and you believe that and you affirm that, we at the very least would have to say that this book at times can be a little bit confusing. There are places that you may have read, things that you have read from this book that you may have said, okay, I don't get that. I don't understand that. I'm reading this part here, and I'm not sure how this part here relates to this part back here. I mean, there's just some, some inconsistencies in, in, in your thinking as you read through the book. It, it, I think it's okay for us to, ex, to just address the fact that this at times can be a confusing book. And here's how I know this is true. If you are someone who's read this book, you, you've read a majority of it, you kind of know some of the themes of the Old Testament, you've, you've read through the Gospels, you know somewhat of the story of Jesus' life, maybe you've read some of the letters, some of the early writings of some of the first Christians after the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you had a friend that had never read the Bible before, They'd never seen a Bible before. They knew something about Jesus and faith and, that, okay, that's what they do at that church place. But they didn't know anything about the Bible. If you gave them a Bible, here's what you would tell them to do. This would make no sense to them at all. It, it would, no, no meaning at all. But you would say, whatever you do, don't start at the front. I mean, you can read the first book, maybe the first three chapters about Adam and Eve and the snake. That's pretty cool. You get to Exodus, you've probably already seen the movie anyways. That's, that's okay. But don't read Leviticus. That's what you'd say. Just don't read it. I mean, unless you're struggling with insomnia, don't read Leviticus is what you'd say. Instead, you would say, here's what you need to do. Turn to like 75% in the book and then start reading from there. Now, has anyone ever given you a book and given you that instruction? Like, here's this great novel. Don't read the first half of it. Just jump to the middle. It doesn't make sense. And yet, there is this sense that when we think about the character and heart of God, that the picture becomes more clear to us the further along that we read. 
As we move into the New Testament, we move into the life of Jesus and, and, and his teachings and the letters that follow. So you will not be surprised to hear that what I'm going to read to you today comes from that point in the book, from the very end. But before I read that to you, I want to talk about why that is, that the picture becomes more clear for us as we continue to read on in the story. So the first chapter of John's gospel, in a moment, I'm going to read to you from one of John's letters, something he wrote later on in his life. John's gospel is John's story of, of the life of Jesus. And this is how he begins his telling of the story of Jesus' life. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word is how John refers to Jesus. He calls Jesus the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, uh, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now, again, if you have some knowledge of the scriptures, you know that the first three words of John's gospel are the first three words of the Bible. It's the first three words of Genesis. The way that John's John opens his story, his, his account of Jesus' life, draws us back to the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis, that tells us about how God created the world. And what John says is that Jesus is the word. Now, why does John refer to Jesus as the word? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you will find that the way God creates the world, the way God makes the world come to life is God speaks the world into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's words are the life-giving, animating part of creation. God speaks, and life is created. Again, here again what, what John says, that, that through him, through the word, all things were made, the word that was with God in the beginning. John is intentionally drawing us back to the creation story and saying that this person whose life I'm going to tell you about is someone who has existed from the very beginning. He was in the beginning the life force, the animating force of all creation, and he continues to be so in the story that I'm about to tell you. But there's another reason that John refers to Jesus as the word. This is so, so important. You think about the fact that the way in which we describe our reality, the way in which we understand our reality, is we use words. We, we, we describe what has happened to us. We describe what we have seen. We use, we use words to give a description of our reality. We forget in our modern world when we can just pull out our phone and, and take a picture of something and then share the image to, to describe what has happened, a, a picture that we describe as something that can literally share a thousand words, that the original human technology that we would use to describe our reality what it is words. So when, when John refers to Jesus as the word, here's what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is the clearest description of the reality of God. That Jesus has come to be for us the words we needed to clearly understand the heart and character of God. 
So there is this intentional, as you read throughout the scriptures, there's this intentional unfolding. There is this intentional uh, clarity that comes because Jesus has come to be the words, the clearest description of the reality of God. So the same guy who wrote that, uh, the, the Gospel of John, we, we turn to 1 John, which is again near, near the end of the scriptures, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Here's how he builds on that thought. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. That's the first thing that John says. Love comes from God. That's where love originates. Everyone who loves, if you've participated in love, if you've sacrificed, if you've given, if you have done anything in love, everyone who loves has been born of God and somehow knows God. Whether they understand any of the words in this book or what, what order it is or any of those other things, somehow if you have experienced love, been a part of love, expressed love, you know something about God because that didn't come from you. That came from something beyond you. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Hear the clarity and the conviction of that statement. God is love. Not God, he's kind of interested in love. He thinks it's a good thing. You know, you should probably love one another. No, no, no. The, the heart and character of God is defined by love. Now, how? How does John know that? Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. These are the words that God used, in other words, to express this. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, the Savior, the Word, into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. In other words, this is what I've learned. This is what we've learned about love. This is what we've learned about God. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, in other words, if you believe that, if you believe that since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Love comes from God. God is love. And the reason that we know that is that God sent Jesus to be for us the words that would describe in the clearest way possible the reality of God, of God's heart and God's character. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through, 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 chapter, through, through verse 12 are, are words that I come back to again and again. They're foundational for me as I think about who God is, who I am called to be, what it means to live in relationship with God. In, in the context of a class that we do every year called Confirmation, it's a class for sixth graders or for students who may be older who have not gone through that class. Uh, a, a class that's really focused on, hey, here are the basic teachings of the Christian faith. This is the, the core of what we believe, one of the first scriptures that we look at in that class is 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, that God is love. And the reason that we know that, the, the, the proof of that, what gives us that conviction and that clarity is the life of Jesus, Jesus who has come to be for us the words, the words that would describe in the clearest way the reality of God. So here's three things that I would say to those, I, I say those confirmands every single year that I'm going to say to you today. The first is this. The first is that you are loved. You are loved. Now, I read to you from the New International Version. You may not know this, but the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. 
And so there's different translations of it. There's different ways that those Greek words are rendered in the text. This is, this is actually one of the points where I don't like the way the NIV says it. If you have an older version that speaks in kind of old-time language, the King James, the word that starts this passage is beloved. And we don't use beloved that often. If you do, your spouse probably loves you for doing it. But we don't use that word a lot. But here's what beloved means. Beloved means you who are loved. You who are loved. John begins this address, this part of his letter, by saying, you who are loved. Before I tell you anything, before we get into this whole thing about God being love and what Jesus has done, I want you to know, we're going to start with this, that you are loved. Your relationship with God starts there. Your life starts there. Every, everything about faith starts there. And, and you may know nothing about this book. You, you may not know anything about what to do in church or, or where to park or any of those other things. You, you, you may be completely clueless on all the rest of this, but guess what? You are loved. That's where your relationship with God begins because that's who God is. God is love. The second thing that we talk about with our students is that love comes from God and love looks like Jesus. Love comes from God and love looks like Jesus. So when we have participated in an act of love, when we've given, when we've served, when we've sacrificed, whether we knew it or not, we were participating with something that started beyond us and something that is only in us because it has been given to us, because our creator wired it inside of us, this, this capacity to sacrifice and to serve and to love. Love comes from God and love looks like Jesus, which means that in the confusion and chaos of your life and my life, and I don't know if you know this, but life is utterly confusing and chaotic. Have you figured that out yet? Have you watched the news? I mean, life is just utterly confusing and chaotic. If, if, if you're married, you, you know that life is utterly confusing and chaotic. A relationship like that is utterly confusing and chaotic. And maybe you've asked yourself the question, whether it's in a relationship with your spouse or your neighbor or your coworker or your friend or your son or your daughter or, or your parents. Or maybe you've asked yourself the question before, you know, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to respond to this? What do, what do I do? Love looks like Jesus. Love looks like Jesus. And so as confusing and as chaotic as life can be, I think that, at least for me, that's a helpful question. When I think about my relationship with my wife or my son or my daughter or whoever it is in my life, to ask myself the question, well, how, how would Jesus respond in this? How, how would Jesus love in the midst of this? And sometimes I don't like my answer to that question because it means I have to say I'm sorry. It means I have to just stop trying to win the battle and say, it's my fault. But that's what love looks like. Love always, always looks like Jesus. And the final thought is this, that the mark of the Christian life is love. That's what it means. So, so wh whether you know everything that, that is in this book and, and all the, ha have answers to all the questions that someone may ask you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that the mark of the Christian life is love. It's love expressed in acts of sacrifice and acts of service. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If we believe that God is love, not God thinks it's a great idea, God's in the, interested in that, but that God, God's character and God's heart is defined by that. And if our job is to follow Jesus, the one who has come to show us that, then the mark of the Christian life will always be love. And if success in your life it can be defined around, I want to walk with God and I want to love, then that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because the mark of the Christian life 
is love. Some of you know that um, in this last year, I, I wrote a book called The Deep End. And the book is about questions of faith. It's about things that I think every follower of Jesus at some point in their life has to address. Difficult questions about how they see the world and what's wrong with the world and what does the Bible really say about how the world is being renewed and put back together. Questions that we ask when tragedy happens, when things occur that none of us expected, when, when really bad things happen to good people, when tragedy strikes in our world, how do you respond to those questions as, as a person of faith? And, and since sharing that book, one of the things that I've been able to do is to, is to have people who have poured into my life, who've helped me deal with those questions in, 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 in my own way, they've read the book. And it's been interesting to have conversations with them about how they helped me come to a place in my own life where I could wrestle with those questions and, and, and where my faith could deepen and grow. So I've gotten to visit two of the churches that were a part of my life. I went a couple months ago to a church that my dad was the pastor of when I was in kindergarten and first grade. And they really hadn't seen me since. And I got to talk about the book and, and talk about my life and my journey and, 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 and where, this, where this, this thing came from. And just this week, I got to go back to the church where I started working as a pastor. Uh, to, to be with, with some families who invested in me and loved me in the midst of you know, me just trying to figure out what this was, was all about. And this is something in the course of preparing for those times I've, I've shared with, with each of those, those people in those groups that the people who have made the most profound impact on me over the course of my life are not the ones who supplied answers to my deepest questions. They weren't the ones who had all the answers. They weren't the ones who, who made it all clear and, 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 and easy for me. But they were the ones who walked with me and loved me in the midst of my questions. They were the people who somehow communicated to me that regardless of what you may be going through or struggling with or whatever doubt you may have in your life, or I still love you. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm not going to give up on you. And I wonder if there is someone in your life today who, who what they really need from you is just that, it's just that devotion, that commitment that says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to love you. I mean, they may be off somewhere engaged in things that, 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 that worry you and concern you and, and you recognize the harm that they make. But, but to say, I, I'm going to love you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to stay committed to you. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To trust in that. To trust that love will somehow be enough. Love will somehow be enough. Love will somehow, somehow be, somehow be enough. And so I just want to remind you, if, if you're struggling, if you don't have all the answers, if, if you're not, not the best at Bible trivia, <laughs> I want to remind you that God is love. And that if you follow that impulse, if you, if you ask yourself the question, okay, so if love looks like Jesus, how then should I live? You're going to be okay. Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Dear friends, beloved, John says, let us love one another for love comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is Love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. God, we know that we don't know everything. And we know, Lord, that we find ourselves on many occasions, Lord, in in places and in situations where we don't know what to do, we don't know how to respond. If this this faith thing is a part of our life, Lord, and we're serious about it, those times can be confusing. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be led by this very, very simple idea, that you are love and that you have come to lead us in a life where that might define our hearts and our lives as well. And Lord, I pray for for anyone who may be here today who who may just be struggling with that simple idea that they themselves are loved. That you see them as your son and as your daughter. That they are your sacred treasure. And somehow, some way, Lord, I, I don't know how it will happen. I simply pray that your love would break through whatever barrier there may be there. That you would speak to them in a way that maybe you've never spoken, that they've never heard you before. And that they would know deep, deep in the fiber of their being that you love them, you treasure them, and you've invited them to see life in a whole new way. May that be true for all of us today, Lord, as we continue to seek to be the people you've called us to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.